right. So uh, welcome to, what are we now? Session 15, I believe, uh, <laughs> of the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm reading group. Uh, we are reading Chapter 12 again, uh, Autonomic Systems 1, 2, 3. Uh, we've got through the very beginning of the beginning uh, last time. And this time we are going to continue uh, to try to get through the part on System 1. Mm. Uh, right. So we last left off, I believe, at page... 169 mm -hmm. yes page 169 I think we're starting paragraph uh, two on that that's correct yes yes okay so just to give us uh, something to go off of I'll read this paragraph and then we'll uh, move on so the input to the classification machine at the divisional regulatory center consists of raw data emanating from divisional operations. These data need to be collected and organized ready for processing and then passed on to the divisional regulatory center. Turn of phrase, these data is still throws me off. It's like, wow, all these, these weird archaic forms of English. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> this is a synaptic function and it is depicted in figure 27 as a very tiny circle on the input transmission line. So let's look at our Wikipedia diagram here. Um, this is something I forgot to bring up. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, wow. Sounds like someone's, uh, someone's like loading a, a, a tape drive or something in the background <laughs> there. Um, or maybe, uh, putting on a, a vinyl record. Okay. Variable system model. I've just put a link in the chat. Thank you. Uh, I got it here. Okay, so uh, we are looking here for the input to the classification machine at the Divisional Regulatory Center. And uh, this is, I believe, the line from, is it the line from the triangle in System 1's box? to the line in the larger triangle on system two? I believe so. If we flip to the Is next page, on, we've got figure 30. And I think they're talking about yeah, the yeah. dot that's labeled three in that diagram, which I think is what you've just named on the other diagram. Yes, 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 yes. That is the same thing. Yes. Okay. Yeah, all right. So we, we got that figured out. All right, good. Um, <clears throat> the synapse itself is shown in more detailed drawing of figure 30 depicting system one. It is step two. Okay, so yeah, uh, step two is, yeah, the line leading to uh -huh. uh, point three that you described there. That's the filter, right? That's why he's, that's why he's saying filter there, because step two is a synapse, and it's got that weird little curvy bit to the right of it. And yes. That's a, that's a buildup of that's charge correct. and then a discharge. So we're, we're already filtering even on the input right. wire. Yes, 
Uh, yeah, there's a there's a filter on that synaptic input. Um, okay. Uh, initially, the whole of the data will be collected so that the classification system may be created. We shall need to store quite simple models of potentiality and more complicated models of capability, which have been evolved by operational research. So this is like your, uh, your initial data set, which is... Um, going to be kind of like a data a data dump that you're going to put into the system uh, prior to sort of ongoing operations. <clears throat> um, then as data about actual operations flow in from step one transducers and through the synaptic step two, we shall need to compute the achievement indices and arrange them in statistically homogeneous groups, step three. Thereafter, however, it will be necessary to transmit only organized samples beyond the step two synapse for checking against the population characteristics of the group. So, okay, so this, the procedure here is uh, the whole of the data is transmitted uh, so that the classification system may be created. You have this data set that you work off of. Uh, then uh, you have actual operations data, which is going to flow in continuously to uh, compute the achievement indices and arrange them in statistically homogeneous groups. And following that, uh, you have only organized samples that are transmitted beyond the steps to synapse, which I believe implies that step three is filtering that data that is coming in from step two. Um, so yeah, any, any thoughts about this, uh, this sort of uh, mysterious description here? Uh, Shane and then Jeremy. This whole section I found to be pretty tricky on the first time around, but a second reading um, helped to clarify exactly what's going on. But at this step two thing, at the synapse, and then into step three, I found it's, it's interesting that they kind of like, you start with a very wide pipe, right? Like you're just getting all the data. And then as, as the system becomes more adapted and becomes more highly functional, the, the, the pipe narrows and it becomes, it, it sort of quietens down. Um, as, as the system, I guess, works out what it can ignore, um, so that's probably the filtering you want to do there is figuring out what you don't care about and throwing away all of that stuff over time. Yeah, it's basically a learning and calibration process, right? Um, okay, uh, Jeremy and then uh, Matt. So step two is a transducer. And in information theory, a transducer is a lot like a translator from one language to another. So the language of what's happening at the activity level just simply isn't the same language as the language at the regulatory center. So it needs to be put into that language. I mean, it'd be like the same way that if you have a lot of information that information needs to be put into a SQL table. And once it's put in a SQL table, 
then you know the computer can read what's in the SQL table. But the very matter of taking raw data and putting it in a SQL table is lossy. It has to be lossy. And Ashby's law comes into effect. Any transducer, to some extent, is, an, is a variety attenuator. So in other writings of beer, he talks a lot about the necessity for transducers. You, you can't just feed raw data into a computer. A computer doesn't know how to read raw data. Um, but also the lossiness and how Ashby's law comes into effect. Um, both two and six are transducers, which means from an in information theoretic perspective, Ashby's law is working to diminish those things. Software muted as well, actually, so that might be it. That was the, yeah, that was the software mute. Thank you. Uh, uh, so, yeah, uh, a minor correction. Uh, step one is the transducer, uh, and step two is the synapse, according to the diagram, uh, just so that, like, listeners don't, don't get confused about that. Uh, but yes, they're operating in in the in in tandem with one another. Um, uh, yeah, and and I guess the there isn't specifically a uh, transduction function that's outlined for five to six to seven, uh, but that may be there. It's just not mentioned in the table. Um, but there's definitely one at uh, point one, uh, activity to point one to point two to point three. Uh, and point one is the transducer. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting to talk about like translation in terms of lossiness. I mean, obviously, that's really basic information theory. Uh, but uh, having worked as a translator, it's interesting when like, um, you will compensate for uh, the lossiness of the translation by adding more variety to the translated text in order to localize it for the 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 uh, language your your the output language, the target language. Um, so yeah, that's definitely uh, it gets to some element of the work of translators that I've experienced uh, personally. Okay, uh, Matt, uh, and then Steve. Uh, yeah, I lo like, like uh, um, uh, uh, just he hearing the word transducer just like clarified like a lot of stuff. Like in retrospect, it's weird this is the first time we're, we're talking about it because I mean like he's talking about like a way to structure like incommensurable systems that fundamentally speak different languages and are encountering new stuff. And like, you know, like that's what a transducer does. Like, you know, th th that's, you know, th th that's how, um, uh, you know, light from, uh, you know, turns into, you know, a binary picture format. 
like, well, like that's how we get from one realm to another. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking of uh, uh, an, uh, another example of like, uh, you know, it's, it's what you know, it's what we do to put anything into a digital computer, and uh, and also like um like uh, you know taking like transaction processing databases and then you know um, yeah like uh, uh, normalizing them into um, SQL tables, or or then um uh, um you know if you have to then take that and turn it into like a profit and loss thing for like an accounting department, like that organization literally just speaks a different language, like like they're not going to understand like uh, uh you know even something more fundamental there with like what Kyle was saying about the translation because like yeah, you're kind of also doing that sometimes with um uh you know like taking the transaction processing and turning it into SQL tables like there's probably some foreign keys in there and like you know like during the transaction processing like it's you know it's just it's just an ID but once it's in you know the actual database then you can join it with you know like you know stuff you know the file you have on the customer or the file that you have on like the item that they bought like uh, uh yeah, there's all this like uh yeah uh, as you're doing a single transduction, you know you're you're also you know um uh, turning it into a representation where you can link it with other stuff that's native to that area. That's his goal. It's good. Yeah, um, and at a sort of qualitative level, from what I remember, uh, Hans Jörg Gadamer uh, gets a lot into the peculiarities of translation uh, in uh, his book i forgot what it's called but he only ever wrote one book so uh, <laughs> uh may be interesting to look at uh steve go ahead uh yeah um so i i find it interesting you know and a little frustrating so he, the way that he sort of keeps layering the different like or different language in terms on on this because you know at some point he starts talking about this one two three process in terms of classes and the statistical models um, and potentials and categories. Um, you know, two is what, what keeps getting me hung up. Like the notion that one is doing this transduction between the continuous data um, and then three takes samples that you can compare against your models in a very, you know, defined statistical sense. That's when he talks about, you know, compare against Gaussian models, et cetera. But this too, where like he starts talking about it in terms of potentiality and build, you know, building up potential, and it just seems like he's well. Well, the analogy to the you know biological synapses is, is like a starting point. It seems like he's going a lot further there because you know I think as Kyle mentioned, like the adaptation that's happening here, the notion that like you know you have your big uh, SQL table, but like in order to get the relevant samples that you can compare against your model is or could be a vastly complicated adaptive and intelligent process. And I think that's pushing a lot into two here, which is like, yeah, we have our big table, but at some point we need to be able to like extract from that information so we can compare. Um, when does that happen? Does that happen like as things get like build up and get wildly like off our models or, you know, what, how often do we sample this? Like all these practical questions about how to like get that data to compare against your statistical model, it all seems to be pushed into two. And I think there's a little bit of sleight of hand in terms of just saying like, oh, you know, it builds up the potential of and sends out the relevant symbols or uh, signals at discrete levels and for three to compare against. But yeah, I just keep coming back to two because it's just seems to be pushing an awful lot of responsibility on that while using terminology, you know, the analogous terminology from biology, which is not actually that complicated. So that that's my current taking away of it. But, you know, it it's all very swishy <laughs> in some sense. Yeah, I think um, 
again, this is, I think, where beer is writing for the manager and saying, oh, your OR people can handle this. You know, uh, so this isn't written for the OR person. This is written for the manager, uh, which is a bit frustrating uh, when we're trying to actually think about how to engineer a system along these lines, because the nitty gritty of engineering is is completely hand waved here, uh, because that's um, something that beer assumes OR people can figure out uh, or has written about elsewhere for OR people. Um, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Beer is assuming that you've read Decision and Control, in which is a large book Beer wrote about OR. So a few times in the book, he says, oh, there's a whole chapter in Decision and Control about this. I think he really is assuming that you have read Decision and Control before reading this book. One of the frustrating things when you look at Beer talking about his own writing is he says, I wrote 10 books read them in sequential order and you will understand what I'm about. And he expects that of his reader, which is like James Joyce saying, I wrote Finnegan's Wake in 17 years. It should take you 17 years to read it. <laughs> you know, it's the same sort of conceit. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously not user centered design. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think you necessarily need to read Decision and Control to get the gist of what Beer is saying in this book. But uh, if you want to implement what is being described here, then yes, I, I suppose that's necessary. Uh, or, you know, some other text that kind of gives you the, the distilled version of Decision and Control. Um, okay, uh, so... Yeah, that that is certainly frustrating, uh, but we will we will carry on and hopefully get something out of this nonetheless. Um, OK, so uh, let's let's go back to the text here. Um, here we encounter the first filtering process of the Divisional Regulatory Center. This also is based on the application of very easily handled statistical techniques exactly like those used in quality control applications. A set of activities belonging to class X builds up a data potential at the step two synapse and on reaching an intensity threshold, fires the whole sample into the regulatory center. Here, step three, the data are applied to stored models and the appropriate achievement indices are formed. These values are compared with the stored parameters of the appropriate achievement group, class X, to see whether any statistical, uh, sti sorry, statistically significant information has been evolved. If it has not, the filter suppresses the information. If it has, the filter passes it on. Uh, again, a detailed account of the cybernetics of the whole process is given in chapter 13 of Decision and Control. See the bibliography. Uh, together with a historical case study showing the results achieved. So go read Decision and Control if this, you have questions about this, is, is Beer's message. Um, uh, great for Beer's publisher as well. Uh, you know, another really expensive book to buy. Um, so 
<laughs> um, anyway, uh, I think we could probably move on from that one because it seems pretty self-explanatory, although it's missing all the details. Um, the regulatory system, as so far described, is capable of de- de- sorry is capable of detecting the movement of members of the population out of that population and into another. It is capable of detecting movements in both the mean and the variance of the population itself as a time trend. And, practical experience shows, it can do both these things long before human observers have detected any significant change. Thus, the classification system is made continuously adaptive to the events of the real world, and the divisional directorate is simultaneously alerted to any changes or any change that has occurred. Uh, This is step four in figure 30. Uh, So we see that uh, step four is a line going from uh, point three or node three uh, inside of system two uh, towards the uh, system three, uh, the directorate. Uh, So uh, it's you, you see the uh, node three goes to node four. Uh, node three is located in system two. Node four is located in system three. Um, I believe that's correct. Yes. Uh, Shane, go ahead. I, I think this is probably worth clarifying because I have become quite confused in a bunch of different ways on this exact topic. So on page 167, um, mm-hmm. We go down to the sort of second and third paragraphs. Um, Its management tool is the divisional regulatory center, the triangle. And then blah, blah, blah. And then this part of the corporate system one constitutes the divisional system three. So on that diagram, figure 130, Mm -hmm. we have to draw a line somewhere that support, that divides the upper system one from the lower system three. And Mm -hmm. the first time I read this, like sort of two, two weeks ago, I thought that the square box was going to be the system three and the triangle was was the upper system one. But then the second time I read it this week, I ended up thinking it was the other way, way around. And be, because mm. I think the, the activity, the blob of activity somewhere off on the left there, is being mm-hmm. monitored by something that ha- would have to be its system three. So I think the triangle there and the, 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 the dot that's labeled three would be the the system three of the lower system. And then the square, the directorate, would be the system one of the upper system. However, I I did end up thinking it was the other way around at one point, and I think I've flipped-flopped back and forth as to which which way he's saying it. I I would kind of prefer that he spell it out uh, with even more text. As, as, As fucking big as this book is, like I would actually want more text there. Now, I'm throwing that out to the room. Like, for instance, for Jeremy, what's, what's your understanding of this? Or for, or for Kyle, what's your understanding of this? Well, what I'm looking at on uh, the Wikipedia diagram, um, it would seem to indicate that you have the... Uh, so, okay, so <laughs> what is labeled as activity uh, in do- figure 30 uh, would correspond to the system two 
or the system one subsystem two in uh, the Wikipedia diagram. Yeah, the triangle, the small triangle inside the box in system one. That's where the activity, quote unquote, is going to be located. And then uh, on figure 30, uh, so uh, the edge edge two going to node three would be the line between that small triangle and the big triangle on uh, on uh, the Wikipedia diagram. Then the feed from uh, node three to node four on figure 30, I believe is the line that is going from the top of system two into the larger system three on the Wikipedia diagram. Um, I think there's some abstraction in the Wikipedia diagram uh, where you're losing some of the detail that's provided in figure 30 here. Okay, I think maybe where my confusion was is that the word directorate, I think... I think Stafford never really clarifies which recursion he's talking about. Like he's he's often talking about processes that cross between recursions, but he doesn't clarify which one he's talking about in a given. Yeah. Sentence. So if we look at uh, Figure twenty seven on page one fifty seven in the book, the sort of unhelpful diagram, um, you you see that there is a box at the top of System two called the Corporate Regulatory Center. And then the uh, box at the top of that sort of spinal column is labeled as the Operations Directorate. So if we go back to figure, figure 30, we can see that the triangle has Regulatory Center as its label, and then figure, th uh, and then sorry, the, and then the box has Directorate. So I believe that those correspond so if you if you look at figure 27 and then you look at the Wikipedia, you can see that the, the corresponding points would be the top of system two as the corporate regulatory center, and then the uh, and then the system three as the operations directorate. Right. Yeah, I, However, I disagree. Yeah, see, I, okay, I think, Jeremy disagrees with me. I, okay. I think the key here let's, is that on, let's hear the disagreement. On 167. <laughs> We've got mentions of the divisional directorate and the divisional regulatory center. So we have we have an mm -hmm. we have a um, we have a corporate directorate and a corporate regulatory center, and then it yep. feels like each of the system ones then has a divisional directorate and divisional regulatory centers, which are plural. And Stafford never clarifies which recursion he's talking about in in many of these cases. Now, what mm -hmm. as I was trying to work through this, I was trying to think maybe maybe what we should do is refer to the recursions with like the NATO phonetic alphabet or whatever, so that there's alpha is a subsystem of Bravo, is a subsystem of Charlie, Delta, yeah. and so on. Now, yeah. we would have to clarify, if we're talking about system three or whatever, are we talking about the Bravo system three or the alpha system three? Is it the parent yes. or the child? Because they both have them. <laughs> this is the fucking problem, they both have them. Um, so this is this, yeah, this is a tricky set of pages. Very tricky. Yeah, this is much clearer in the heart of enterprise, or heart of the enterprise. The reality is, figure thirty 
is a purely system one diagram. Okay. It's purely yes, system one. Yes, it is one. labeled system one. Yeah, so it is the circle bit that says activity is what in figure 27 is this called division. The yep. directorate is the divisional directorate. And the regulatory center is the divisional regulatory center. Okay. And all of that to beer is system one. Yep, yep, yeah. And actually, um, what also is system one is how the activity extends into the environment. Right. So that's all one slice, one horizontal slice of figure 27. I, I don't. Level. I don't see how um, it uh, like I, I don't really see, though, how it matters which level of, of, of recursion you take, because I'm looking at the Wikipedia diagram and it, it it's an infinite regress downward. Like the same the same diagram is in the small one and the big one. They're just tilted to a certain degree. Right, but I guess it's like a, a, the the crossover points are probably matter, such as like if a um, you know a gorilla is holding right. a baby gorilla is holding a banana, is the parent holding a banana? Yeah. No, like it, the parent is holding a child who is holding a banana, and so on. It 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 feels like it's kind of like because because you can go up and down the abstraction stack, but I think I think in a couple of places Stafford is like you just have to identify which 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 rung of the ladder you're on and figure mm. out what's up and what's down without needing to go all the way up and down. But I, I, do, th I do think the language he uses here is kind of not clear enough. Um, because, oh, I, I, you know. I think I see... I think I see what's going on. Uh, so on the Wikipedia diagram, um, the line, uh, sorry, edge two from figure 30 is labeled as local regulation. Uh huh. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, you're right. You're right because it's coming off. Of and the then uh, the system two that that leads to it goes into the uh, box of system one, uh, and that line, which I previously thought was line two, is actually the line from three to four yeah 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 that's that's what's going on here the circular activity okay. bit is the key here right that like the system one activity is the circle of of one and the the square directorate yeah. is the square of one um, yeah mm -hmm. okay that that's actually correct. does line up yeah that lines up quite well yeah it does line up yeah it does okay. it does yeah okay okay <laughs> well that's about as clear as mud but uh we've at least <laughs> Mapped one picture onto the other picture, which is uh, is an accomplishment in itself. Now, one um, tiny little thing to, to emphasize in, in in this, and it, this this could help us get clarity later, is that I think that I think the the phrase that he consistently uses, or that the pair of phrases, is corporate and divisional. So that mm -hmm. the, the corporate system one makes contact with the divisional system three. That's that's the crossover point. And that's that's our yep. kind of key as to which way is up and which way is down on the ladder. Yep. Yep. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. 
Yes. No, that all makes sense. It all it all maps on now. I can see the connections. They're all they're all uh, directly uh, mapped on there uh, between the Wikipedia diagram and the figure thirty. Um, you can see them one for one. Um, great. Okay. Um, uh, so again, uh, you know, for the listener, uh, take, uh, the circle on the Wikipedia diagram as the circle in figure 30, the triangle, uh, is the triangle at the end of local regulation. Uh, and then the directorate is what is labeled as local management on the Wikipedia diagram. Um, and that is your uh, full diagram. Uh, the only thing that we do not see in figure 30 uh, is the system three star going from directorate to activity because that's not really relevant to this discussion. Well, it can't happen. Yeah, yeah. The uh, because you're not dealing with the corporate level. System three star only kicks into play when the corporate level descends down to the divisional level. Right, right. Yeah, and th that's not to say that the diagram on Wikipedia is wrong. It's just we're talking about an upward flow here, not a downward flow, um, which is why it can't happen. Okay, <laughs> great. Um, all right, so uh, let's uh, move on. Um, we are now on 170. Uh, here is the managerial trigger of the reflex arc, which corresponds to the sensory input so far classified, monitored, and filtered. To understand what happens next at, at step five, it is vital to realize that basic procedures for controlling activities are already settled. For example, we know the process routes for all products, or we know the list of retailers on whom salesmen must call. The purpose now, therefore, would be wrongly regarded as the quote-unquote creation of a plan and a program because they already exist in shadow form. Rather, System 5 is a dynamic process of adjustment which selects particular plans for implementation and quantifies the required programs in a feasible form for the present epoch. So uh, number five in figure 30 is described as, quote, continuous planning, strategic, and programming, tactical generator. Uh, so this is kind of like you are selecting from a catalog of responses um, and you are adapting to the input levels that you are getting. Uh, uh, Shane, go ahead. So it's we, we've had how many, what, six or seven pages describing the corporate system one. And it's at this point we're at dot five that we finally reach a place where we can see how uh, recursion Bravo is op is acting as a meta system to recursion alpha. It's it's that this is the crossover point where the, the upper plans meet the lower plans, and there's a selector that can select valid plans, like plans that the upper system considers valid, and relay them downwards. 
Um, so th this, this little nexus of neurons is conditioned by the plans that are coming way up the, the line from, from System 3 up, upwards from here, the, the System 3 that we're going to talk about in a couple of pages. And as, as one encounters problems, as the lower system encounters problems, it can then check with its upper system as to what kinds of plans are valid. And that finally comes into view here. <laughs> uh, right. So, well, what we're describing is we've gone from one to two to three to four, which goes into the management or the directorate, and then out of the directorate into back into the regulatory center at five. Um, so, yes, the directorate is conditioning what um, uh, point five is doing here. Um, although it's kind of like, yeah, it, um, it's sort of like the manager is saying, well, what can we do about this? And then point five has a menu of options to, uh, to, to, to provide. Um, okay, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Okay. It's important to jump back to page 163 in the previous chapter. In the middle of the page, he uses a specific terminology, which I find very frustrating because we use these words normally to mean different things. So he says, um, again, it will pay to assimilate the following definitions. Planning on the basis of actuality, I call programming. Planning on the basis of capability, I call planning by objectives. Planning on the basis of potentiality, I call normative planning. For the rest of the book, he uses programming to mean planning on the basis of actuality. So when you see programming later on, what he's talking about is planning on the basis of actuality. And he does use the term normative planning a lot and planning by objectives. So it's important not to forget specifically what he means by those things. I think in this case, he's talking about programming, which means looking at the actuality metrics and evaluating based on the actuality metrics. Um, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he says... Uh, he says um, uh, in point five, continuous planning, bracket strategic, and programming, bracket tactical generator mm. uh, of point five. So um, he says about these on page 163, uh, the first of these, so planning on the basis of actuality, is simply a program because it accepts the inevitable shortcomings of the situation and does not admit that anything can imminently be done about them. Hmm. Programming is a tactical ruse. We move to genuine planning only when we set new objectives and try to achieve them. This is the strategic planning level. Then when we go back to 170, um, he says... Uh, uh, the basic procedures for controlling activities are already settled. Uh, the purpose now, therefore, would be wrongly regarded as the creation of a plan and a program because they already exist in shadow form. 
Step five is a dynamic process of adjustment which selects particular plans for implementation and quantifies the required programs in a feasible form for the present epoch. Hmm. So I, the only thing I can really get out of this is essentially that the, um, the strategic dimension is kind of like the selecting between plans and the adjustment to those plans. The tactical dimension is just kind of reckoning with the data that's there. Uh, that, that, that's all I can really figure out of this. Uh, because, you know, uh, you know, tactics are generally uh, reactions, like uh, sort of short-term reactions to an immediate situation. And uh, strategy is looking at a situation holistically and choosing plans that are going to yield results at a longer time scale and a, a larger spatial scale. Hmm. Um, but the sort of what Beer is saying here seems to be that sort of like the creative dimension of strategy um, is not really present in point five. It, it, it's it's like you're kind of like choosing between contingency plans that have already been formulated. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, Shane and then Steve, uh, please go ahead. So I, I think this bit could be maybe rephrased as that five it selects a strategy and quantifies feasible tactics that it wants to hear about later. Um, because I think this is all part of this like sensory motor correlation arc, right? That like if you select a strategy, you you're also like you also need to like specify what kind of like tactical measures you would want to feedback in return. I think maybe this is a thing that I'm, I'm more right. bringing from like Heart of the Enterprise, where he kind of emphasizes that like if you're projecting a plan or you're projecting a strategy, you're like sending that downwards, but you also need to specify what kinds of boomerang data you would expect to come back to like make the whole thing be feasible or to be to be quantified. Um, so it feels like it's it's five is simultaneously selecting a strategy and telling you about feasible tactics mm -hmm. for for, for mm -hmm. reporting back. Because if if it's if it's I don't know if it's all just projecting the strategy, then you're just throwing the boomerang and it never comes back, or you don't you don't know that it comes back, or you don't have any way of detecting it. Like like in a scientific experiment, right? You you fire the probe into the thing. You have to have a sense of what response you could ever expect from it in order to be able to measure a response. So if I fire a beam of light in and I expect light to come back, well, that's, that's, a, that's a thing that's like I, my strategy is to fire light in and my tactical measurement is to measure light that comes back. But if, I, if there was a different experiment and I fired light in but expected x-rays to come back or whatever, you know, I, I don't fucking know, um, that would be a different sort of thing. Um, but that might be me mm -hmm. importing some stuff from Heart of the Enterprise. Um, so, no, I think that sounds about right to me. Uh, Steve, go ahead. Um, yeah, two things. Like, I actually found this a little bit, or, you know, I, I found this much more clear than the previous discussion. Um, the way that I sort of grounded it and thinking about it in very, you know, firm factory terms, right, is the notion of like, you know, four is the thing that can be able to assess based on, you know, the uh, capability productivity stuff and say like, oh, you know, we need to hire another person. 
um, or you know hire another robot or build an, or build another factory and all these things that ultimately have to work within the constraints coming from above which is I think where the a B and C circles in the directorate part come in basically those are the constraints like higher level constraints that while there might be a number of feasible solutions that very specifically can map on to you know what those metrics coming out of the underlying activity are um, and you know there might be some choices and five five has the ability to say actually no I, I want to hire you know I want to hire two more people or versus you know we need to uh, buy ten more robots that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I, that's mostly clear to me. Um, at least I think it is what I, I, I'm interested in it. Like what, what confused me more was this A, B and C notion, which is rarely not really discussed. I don't think. Um, and I think the key at the top of the figure 30 is specifically that A, B and C, but I actually have doubts in whether that what said there is A, B and C is the same thing as the ABC in the diagram. But um, it kind of yeah, makes, so I think it is. Okay. I think it is. Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense. And what he's doing is pushing in those higher level corporate um, constraints and saying, you know, four has to be able to assess the possible solutions given the constraints from the larger, bigger picture. Five has essentially an operating operations budget to be able to choose what they think makes sense and, and send that back down to the to the um, division, I guess. Um, but, you know, I just got tripped up by the fact that, like, oh, I think he's collapsing well i don't know it, it, it's either it wasn't clear if it was collapsing you know at this level of the hierarchy the higher level corporate uh systems before and five into the a b and c diagram or whether that a b and c diagram are actually the lower level systems three four and five um and you know the massive interconnectedness there which is not complete but uh certainly probably means something in his mind <laughs> isn't exactly clear or explained uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you can see on uh, the Wikipedia diagram how this might sort of figure in, right? Uh, that the line to A could be the line going down into the divisional system four, and the uh, line uh, out of B could be the the line that goes up through the divisional system three. See that is, there's that like spinal line that like cuts yeah. through the, both of the the ones. Uh, I, th I think that's maybe what's being referred to here. Yeah, I mean, it actually seems like it's almost now that I look at it and do this comparison I hadn't previously. Like it almost seems like it's a direct. Uh, I could map out the lines. The A, B, C, and four are exactly the three, four, five, and two inside the system. Uh, and he does say uh, normative planning function C is the divisional systems four and five. Um, so I believe that would kind of be, uh, it would kind of correspond to uh, that line that cuts through three, four, five inside of the, the system one box, the local management box. Uh, on the Wikipedia diagram. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I need to do some more. That might actually just be that that thick line that goes through the middle. So I don't know. Uh, but I, I think you're right that you can probably actually um, 
because it might be the arrows too. You you you, uh, you could probably actually map this one to one onto the Wikipedia diagram. It just would take some doing because it's a little it's a little bit different looking from what uh, is in Figure Thirty. Because yeah, it seems like that actually would be the arrows. C would be the arrows, and then the the thick line between B A and four would be the thick line that goes through those the three five in the local management um and yeah no that all maps together yeah that's interesting uh yeah it's the it's yeah no it's it's a one it's a one-to-one mapping except for the the uh the arrows at the top of the box which uh are not relevant to this discussion um okay uh shane go ahead yeah, uh, yeah, exactly that, right? That like this, the what, what's on the diagram in in Figure Thirty, uh, A, B, and C are the the divisional, the the lower systems, System Four and Five, as as it says at the the top of the diagram under the key uh, for point C, normative planning function, which is the divisional, Systems Four and Five. It's notable that in this chapter so far, we are still at System One from the corporate perspective. We're still halfway down the spinal column. We have not reached the corporate system three yet so if there's a system three in view it belongs to the child system not the parent system definitely um okay uh so uh keep going here uh we probably can do one more bit before we finish uh planning therefore consists of the arrangement within these known procedures of a number of building blocks which are forecast actualities. Note that the directorate may gear itself to normative plans and also, particularly in collaboration with other divisions, strive towards those harmonious and synergistic relationships which will raise the whole level of actual achievement to the level of capability. But in the short run, in responding at step five, Uh, with motor output to a sensory input, the governing required must needs be based on an accurate assessment of what will actually happen. Uh, Again, that's the the sort of tactical dimension. Um, It is now clearer than ever why the provision of massive databases will not achieve these ends. Every possible variant on every possible program cannot be evaluated in advance and cannot be stored. That is our standard argument. Still less, we can now see, would it be possible to update all these features from epoch to epoch in the light of whatever time trends were affecting productivity. The alternative is to generate the quantities required as they are required by the following method. There is a general model of capability in store, which was not too difficult to construct nor too expensive to record because it is idealized. We may then select the required features of our program from this model, just as if we intended to issue an idealized program based on capability. But before putting the building blocks of the program together, we adjust or weight each item by the reciprocal of its current productivity index. Um, so he's kind of saying that when we do the 
when we do the tactical check, the check of actuality, we are not uh, basing this on perfect forward computation, but instead basing it on the models that we have generated, um, which are idealized and kind of abstract what our capabilities are. Um, so it, it's not based on a gigantic, perfect database of, of, of future knowledge uh, that takes into account all of the a asynchronous dimensions of time, et cetera, et cetera. It's based off of the idealized capability model. Um, okay. Uh, so, for example, suppose that the time required to do a certain job comes out in capability terms as two hours. If the mean productivity currently attaching to the class to which this item belongs is one half, then the forecast actual time for use in the program will be four hours. So our capability is two, but because of our actual productivity, um, we are going to do it in four. We're not at capability. Um, <clears throat> uh, now suppose that as a result of turning this particular set of programs into an activity, the division succeeds in effecting radical and permanent improvements in its methods of production. This will be detected in the next epoch and steps two and three of the sensory input will detect and measure the change. To take an extreme case, suppose the productivity rises from a half to four fifths. The filters will at once alert the directorate, which assuming it can satisfy itself as to the change, will approve the new coefficient at step four. That means that in this next epoch, step five will be computing the same element in its program as follows. The basic model of capability will continue to supply a time of two hours, but now this will be multiplied by the reciprocal of four-fifths instead of a half, and the forecast actual time will emerge as two times five divided by four, equaling two and a half hours. So here's what is actually happening. I'm not going to read the formulas, uh, but uh, he's he's describing in in, uh, in formulas and in, in simple algebra uh, what uh, what is going on uh, in that word example. Um, as we saw in Figure 29. The productivity equation, depending on the measures, measurements used, may be the other way up. Uh, figure 29. Yes. Uh, this was the thing where... Now, I remember there was a discussion about this in the previous chapter about how these things can be kind of situational, the way they're arranged. Does anyone remember the substance of that, uh, Jeremy? Yeah, the substance is that sometimes better is a smaller number and sometimes better is a bigger number. 
If you print, right. print out more widgets per hour, then you want bigger numbers. If you want the number of hours it takes to do something to go down because you're more efficient, you want the hours to go down, you want the numbers to go down, in which case beer just advises that you take the reciprocals. Right, right, right. Of the okay. ratios, you know. Yes, yes. Um, okay. Uh, but in that case, the rest of the above argument is also inverted. It makes no difference. In either case, we are confronted by a circular argument, an algebraic tautology. It must be right, then, but why undertake it? The answer is ease of control. We are taking actuality to have one constant and one variable component. The constant is easy to store. The variable is easy to control. To try and handle the whole thing in one go would take us straight back to the massive data banks which have been repudiated. So I think what he's saying here is that you want to have that constant or sort of semi-constant of capability uh, in order to adjust uh, your actuality, right? Uh, if they're both moving, then all you have is just basically massive seas of data that are shifting uh, and you're trying to find ratios between them. Programs for action within the division continuously generated in this fashion at step five will be assembled for issue to the operating centers as required at the synaptic step six. Uh, so synaptic step six is the step from five to seven uh, from the continuous uh, planning and programming generator uh, to the motor transduction determining action. Um, a typical, as a typical example of this step, we may think of the preparation of a complete shift's work of job cards, which will be transduced into a production shop, step seven, by whatever means is customary for their distribution. So like whether it's the end of the day, the beginning of the day, of uh, lunchtime, uh, whether there are, uh, you know, bi-hourly distributions, whatever is customary is what they're going to use. Um, it will be appreciated that the pr approach we are using decouples the control variables, which are pure numbers, from the managerial parameters of the system. These parameters may be expressed in terms of machine occupancy, time taken, number of men employed, and so forth as required, and as determined in advance by the general idealized model. In that case, we should treat the cost variable in precisely the same way. Actual costs may be associated with every resource used at the idealized capability level. This means that the model can at once generate an idealized cost for which a given activity could be undertaken. But the components of this cost will each be modified along with every other feature of the activity according to the appropriate productivity classes which become invoked in the programming process. Hence, we shall generate forecast actual costs for all activities, all activities as a byproduct. Moreover, when the work has been completed, we shall, of course, be able to generate a historical cost from the final measured productivity, which the specific activity in the event procured. 
So this bit, uh, I think, requires some explanation because it's not super, super clear. Um, I think the most important thing here is the decoupling of the control variables, which are pure numbers, from the managerial parameters of the system. Uh, does anyone have an idea of what exactly is, is meant by that? Uh, Shane, go ahead. I think I might finally be back. Um, this, this latter part confused me, but the thing I wanted to say about the pre this previous bit, or I guess this whole bit, is this, this is capital volume one shit, right? Capability is socially necessary labor time, and actuality is like actual labor time and so on, right? Am I going mad there? Um, yes, I think that is kind of the, the transformation that's being done here. Uh, but yes, uh, the socially necessary uh, component would be the component that is indicated by management, um, right? Because that's the the component that is um, that's the component that works into the whole system, right? Which is what what socially necessary labor time indicates, right? Is is it's socially necessary because it it figures into essentially the emergent plan that is generated by capitalism to have inputs and outputs temporarily balance. Right. Um, and the uh, concrete labor time would be the labor time, the, the actuality, the programming dimension that is um, indicated by uh the system one or sorry, the, the work unit. Right. Um, and there is a reconciliation of those two that's happening here, which is analogous to uh, what the market does, what the exchange process does under capitalism. Um, it's not exactly the same, but there is uh, there is a matching that that you can do there. Yeah, I kind of wonder then with Beer's uh, tripartite kind of measures, like with the potentiality, capability, and and actuality, is it, it, mm -hmm. what, what feels like maybe these couple of pages give us some sort of sense of what a planning and production system beyond capitalist value terms could possibly look like and could be more general than just labor time planning, but also maybe perhaps a richer yes. because it has three terms rather than two and so on. It's just a very interesting pa uh, passage, this, from that angle. Um, yes, I see what you're saying in the sense that uh, um, the capitalist exchange process essentially will calibrate actuality versus uh, capability, but it has no, uh, the basic exchange process has no dimension for potentiality, which is the dimension that is introduced first by the capitalist's investment plan, and then in the second instance by the stock market, right? 
but I guess also the stock market w- it covers the potentiality uh, dimension. That's the investment yeah. function in okay. capitalism, right? Right. Yeah. And I guess the the other angle on this that uh, that I find interesting is the possibility that beer has tapped into something more fundamental, and that is expressible in all kinds of different measures rather than just labor time. Um, but that's 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 for the the cooks of the future to figure out, I guess. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, well, I mean, in in terms of, <laughs> uh, basically, capitalism does a transduction between labor time and price, right? And price is the variable it controls for in the exchange process. But that's because of the transduction that's being done through through exchange. Um, uh, Matt, please go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, 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 to the how yeah, you know, this sort of provides like like a meta framework like for planning and you know and and, and KPIs in general because I mean like if you feel like uh, like actual firms you know like not just like the idealized one. Uh, you know, that's just looking at like labor time. I mean, like is doing like a version of this, like, you know, uh, like you could have and, you know, actually you probably literally have people like beer really just like optimizing for, you know, um, uh, um, uh, you know, like material usage and, uh, uh, and, you know, uh, you know, like kind of very like material things that then, you know, sort of get like nudged by systems four and five to say, no, 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 yeah, you, well, like maybe that would be more efficient, but you know, like that'll fuck with labor discipline. Like, uh, uh, you yeah, know, there, there are a lot of examples of like, uh, um, um, I think an iconic one is um, like like a uh, one of the big American car manufacturers in like the seventies, like decided to start like uh, splitting up some of its factories, like which actually made it less efficient, but you know, like um, made it less vulnerable to a uh, um, a single you know uh, uh, to uh, to a strike basically, and uh, uh, you know, l- 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 like the fact that they're counterbalancing these things, I think, is you know. Yeah, but that, that's also what makes it a uh, um, a kind of more general pattern that, you know, like we could have a different system five, you know, it could be, you know, la puebla, la, 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 la puebla. it can be the people. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, it, it also makes me think about um, when we were reading uh, platform capitalism, the uh, industrial platform capitalism uh, that's represented by companies like Siemens and stuff like that, or GE, uh, where they have like enormous Internet of Things data gathering capabilities, which are uh, are based off of uh, material uh, variables, right? Like temperature, flow rate, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and that's figuring into the planning process. So... That is like, although the sort of master control is for profitability, there are in those kinds of like industrial platform systems, uh, you know, many different types of input that are that are happening as far as I understand. So uh, what I guess is at question is kind of like. the scope of variables that that figure into your optimization uh it, it, it's ultimately going to be subordinate to profitability under capitalism i'm not sure that's necessarily the case or will, it wouldn't be the case under socialism so it's, it's a matter of like how do you formalize that right 
uh, Shane, go ahead. This this gets to something that's kind of been rattling around in my head for a while, right? The the way that we partition up the the system ones, right? Because it it seems that like Beer's insistence that a system one unit has to be able to stand on its own and be able to like only publish very few metrics about itself in order to integrate into the higher control system. That reminds me a lot of the way that price and money and profitability abstract over all of these internal variables like the wear rate on machines and morale and material flows and such at at a corporate level mm-hmm. they get abstracted into just money and there's there's a sort yeah. of there's a way that the scales work in capitalism that like you know detail 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 and then it gets bubbled detail 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 gets bubbled right and i i kind of wonder and i would really love to investigate this further but is beer's conception of the way the the like degree of solidity that the system one units must have is that an artifact of capitalist organization where units tend to organize into clusters such that they can be represented by smaller price-based metrics and is it possible that in communism the, the 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 tree of systems would be a bit more rhizomatic because it would not have that imperative to squash variety into price signals. I, I don't know. That's just been that's been rattling around for a while. I wonder if the way that the boundaries get drawn in these systems is an artifact of Stafford's lived experience in in capitalist terms. Uh, I think that's possible, but it it. So you could have uh, a somewhat richer output going up the tr- chain in, uh, you know, communism, but Ashby's law is still going to figure into this in terms of a variety attenuation. And it, it's more the case, I think, that uh, that that form of abstraction that's going on there is um, I guess part of the viability of capitalism. Uh, It's kind of like it figures into this general model, but it's, it's not really a perfect uh, mapping onto the VSM because the algodonic signals that can be sent out of a firm uh, into, say, the kind of, like, idiot brain of the market um, are, you know, kind of limited, right? Um, there, There's so many dimensions they don't cover. Uh, it, it feels like capitalism, like, the higher you get up the stack in the VSM, the less capable it is. Yeah, no, you're right. I, th- I think it's, uh, I think you've, you've talked me out of that, that possible problem there where uh, I, I think it, yeah, I think it is that Beer is thinking about a system that points way beyond his current experience with capitalism. I, whereas my initial worry was that maybe his thinking is conditioned by the way that capitalist organiz, organizations happen to be structured. But no, I, I don't. I, now that now that we've talked I, talked it through, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case because. Uh he does have plenty of critiques of capitalist organization yeah, yeah, yeah. that emerge out of the theory. Uh, uh, 
Yeah, but you know, it, it's it's uh, it's not uh, a theory that emerges from the head of Zeus. It, it it is something based in experience. So there there will be no uh, pure uh, model that comes out of this completely dis, dis, uh, uh, aggregated. Um, okay, uh, Matt, and then Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I, I go back and forth on like whether or not like there will be some kind of n- numer- numeraire, or um, I guess how the way French works. I guess it would just be new. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 but yeah, well, like, like whether or not you, know, you boil things down to a single number, you know, probably based on some version of a democratic method. And I mean, like also be like, you know, you could use this to, you know, with the right um, uh, variety attenuation, especially because, like, you know, since this was written, I'm pretty sure, like, there have been some advances in, like, uh, dimensionality reduction and stuff. Like, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, like you know, you really could, like, have people make informed choices, I think, to uh, uh, d- different kinds of economic plans with, like, and, like, really sort of see, l- like, the different trade-offs, like, for different ones. Yeah, I think, I, I think some kind of top-level, like, a, a numeraire based on some kind of democratic mechanism would probably still be what it winds up being. Right. So uh, the um, I'm I'm a bit rusty on this, but uh, uh, from what I remember, the numeraire is a term invented by Walra uh, in uh, the sort of foundations of um, neoclassical theory to kind of posit a. a sort of fantasy version of how capitalism can coordinate itself or how a market system can coordinate itself. And it's kind of like the unit that allows for, for coordination between all the different capitals uh, in this, in this, uh, in this system. Uh, So, you know, uh, it's kind of analogous to the way that uh, cockshot sees like labor time. Um, Right. Uh, uh, Jeremy, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, in Beyond Dispute, the invention of team's integrity in the introduction, Beer talks about what it was like working with Allende and says, refreshingly, when you work with a Marxist country, they have no illusions about where the source of value comes from. And I really like that. Like, basically, he understands capital. He read capital. He did an analysis of capital. And so Beer agrees that Marxists have it right with Marxist value theory, that the labor theory of value is right. Right, right. Um, Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's a very good point. Okay, uh, we do need to wrap up, but I would like to spend some time on this final paragraph. Um, Does anyone have an idea of what the hell he's going on about here with the decoupling of the control variables from the managerial parameters of the system? Uh, Rudy, please go ahead. I think... Like rather than overreading it, I would think it's something like capacity would be a managerial parameter versus say a control parameter would be output in tons of steel. And you know, you don't have to know the output in tons of steel, you have to know how much of the percentage of capacity it's working at. That's my general impression of what's being said here, is that like you're looking at the ratio more than you're looking at the uh the individual fulfillments 
uh, in in material units. Um, actual costs may be associated with every resource used at the idealized capability levels. This means that a model can at once generate an idealized cost for what a given activity could be undertaken. But the components of this cost will each be modified along with every other feature of the activity according to the appropriate productivity classes which become invoked in the programming process. Okay. Appropriate productivity classes. Hence, we shall generate forecast actual costs for all activities as a byproduct. I, I get a vague sense of what he's going on about here with like this idea that you have these pure number uh, capability figures and your input or sorry, your, uh, your data is just going to kind of like flow into ratios with these, these pure numbers uh, as a matter of course, but I don't get it. The details, uh, Jeremy and then Steve, please go ahead. So he's hinting at something that he's explicit about in pro in uh, platform for change where he's he wants a systemic shift from the standard business model in which money and costs are the sole metric. And in uh, Platform for Change, he says money is terribly important, but really the purpose of any system is eudaimony, um, which he takes from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, is basically achieving the best possible state for the system that works the best for the people in it, that makes them better people, that improves people and the world. And therefore he says that ultimately money is a constraint on eudaimony and that therefore we need to take money into account systemically. Costs need to be taken into account as constraints on eudaimony rather than as central to the purpose of the system. You know, in classical economics, well, not classical, but like if you take a microeconomics class or a Mac, you know, what you'll be told is that you need to look at profits and profits are made out of revenue minus cost. And therefore, Anything that costs anything at all is eating into your profits. And that includes paying your workers. You know what I mean? So, like, if you look at, like, you know, a standard business course, they look at workers' salary as eating into the profits of the company, which is why they're inimical to any sort of workers' rights, because if workers get rights at all, they're going to eat into the profits. And that's a terrible thing. And Beer doesn't think that at all. Beer thinks that the purpose of the company is eudaimony, that the goal is eudaimony, and that all costs are, all money is, is a constraint on that eudaimony. And therefore, that's, that's the decoupling I interpret him to be talking about. Rather than looking in terms of, ooh, how do we cut costs? How do we get more efficient? How do we maximize profits? He's not thinking that at all. He's thinking, how do we maximize the eudaimony in the system? 
Okay. Uh, so the um, essentially like the the you know if, to use like a neoclassical term like the production possibilities uh, curve is going to be indicated by cost, and you're going to try to maximize eudaimony within the space that is is described there. Um, you know. Uh, I believe it's usually referred to as flourishing, uh, Aristotelian flourishing. Uh, uh, Steve, go ahead. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, actually how Jeremy just framed it uh, sort of reinterprets what I was going to say in, in a nice way. So like what I think he's getting at from a couple different directions here. So, you know, I go back to like figures eight and nine. And I think that he's, my first reaction was he's trying to take those very sort of specific feedback loops from control theory that have very specific meanings when you're looking at, you know, control systems. And even to the point where like, you really can look at the system model and take the rate, the reciprocal of that. And that becomes your control function, you know, the language that he's hinting at, at some throughout this chapter, um, because it's grounded in that. But I think like going off what, what Jeremy's saying, like, if you try to take figure eight and apply that to profit, just as, as the control variable, you're not going to get very far because you know, you're losing the variety. You're, you're actually losing the complexity of the system in there. Um, and that's as he makes the transition from figure eight to figure nine, which actually tries to capture that um, extra variety. You know, I think you know, that's his leap, right? And that opens up the space for you actually to be able to do all of these things that he's saying when you're starting to talk about capability and actuality, et cetera. When you think about not just, you know, what added profit does my new hire or new robot give me? You know, those, the, the functionality of that, of that capital is something that can be put into like, well, no, uh, this robot will increase my productivity with this rate, you know, and that's something which he's assuming they have an idea of, or at least some model of. And I think like bringing all this stuff together, like he's trying to use that feedback control language and try to expand that up to incorporate the, the actual complexity and variety of, um, of what's actually happening for actual use. Um, but then, you know, as what Rudy's saying, like, you know, let's not overthink it here, right? Basically what they're saying is we have different, pieces of capital, robots, people, et cetera, that we can use to change the, these ratios and change these functions to get increased output. But I think he's just conflating, you know, he's, he's tr keeps trying to go back to this, this fundamental feedback loop control theory language, but then abstracted to the point where he's talking about, you know, the things he's talking about in this paragraph. So th that's how I sort of tie all of this together. And, and I, I think it, you know, it makes sense at a conceptual level. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, that 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 the thing about the those early diagrams and the the problem of like using only profit as a, as the measure reminded me of I think in Ashby's introduction to cybernetics. Now, Beer was a huge fan of Ashby and was massively influenced by introduction to cybernetics. And in in the introduction to cybernetics, Ashby starts out with these little machine boxes and they send data back and forth to each other and little goes nuts. But then he very quickly introduces the notion that instead of just sending one number down the pipe, it sends a list of three numbers. 
So there's three dimensions to the to the variable variable that it's that it's sending, right? It's and I made a joke earlier in the chat about like vector currencies, as as a or as a more rich representation of things, and that that what Steve was saying just reminded me that actually is in Ashby basically like vector um, measures, and I think. I have a suspicion that that's actually lurking at the back of Stafford's mind a lot of the time, and it's more it's more evident in, in Figure Nine that there's like this rich multi-dimensional input to the anastomotic reticulum, and then there's a, a multi-threaded like output for the motor plate. But that's all lost when he goes to the convention of just using little single lines to draw his diagrams. I think it is implicit there that he's he's not asking us to use one num one sort of measure like profitability or whatever i think he does keep he does implicitly in the back of his head have this notion of like vector measures that you you would send a um, a tuple of 17 numbers up to to system 2 and that it wouldn't just be all represented in one measure yeah and then you'll have cap uh, capacity metrics that uh, correspond to those um yeah, no, definitely. Uh, that seems to be what he's saying. Um, I would have appreciated some examples in like uh, kind of, uh, you know, algebraic form at the base of this, this section instead of just sort of gesturing to different types of production. But uh, I think that's what he's getting at. Uh, so we're over uh, time here, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna call it on uh, this session. Uh, thankfully, we got through the uh, system one section. Uh, we'll be moving on to system two uh, next time. And uh, thank you for participating, everyone. Uh, I know this was a quite a dense session, um, but uh, and and uh, thank you for uh, participating, uh, many of you, on uh, your uh, actual. Uh, fourth of july holiday <laughs> uh, so uh yes um all right uh take care everybody everyone see you soon thanks later Bye.